Welcome everyone. I'm Jennifer March, the Executive Director of Citizens Committee for Children, and you are joining Here Our Voices Presents, What Really Happens in Shelter with Lived Experts of Homelessness on Education and Mental Health. I'm going to walk you through a little bit of information before we get into our panel discussion. I would ask anyone that has questions, please add them to the Q&A chat. And we'll try to address them live, and if not live, in follow-up through email to everyone that has registered. As you know, the Family Homelessness Coalition is composed of advocates, experts, and service providers dedicated to shining a light on family homelessness in New York City and advancing policy solutions to put an end to homelessness. We also have housing policy fellows that are lived experts of homelessness and housing instability that share their stories and resources for families through the Hear Our Voices podcast and work with the coalition to push for coordinated efforts focused on the needs of children and families experiencing housing instability and strengthening the partnership and collaboration with the community of families with experiences of homelessness. This slide basically reveals on the left-hand side of your screen that during the pandemic, when the eviction moratorium was in place, we actually saw a decline in the number of families that were coming into the Department of Homeless Services Family Shelter System. But then on the right of your screen, you see that since January of 2022, we've seen a steady uptick in the number of families with children that are needing shelter. We know too from historic information that families with children make up the majority of the population living in the city's shelter system. This slide reveals just how large the number of individuals of families with children are in the city shelter system. And we also know sadly that families with children in shelter are disproportionately black and Hispanic, a reflection of systemic racism and other forms of discrimination families face both in the housing and labor market. This slide basically reveals that uh, the, while the Hispanic population of families represents 29% of all families in New York City, they represent 41% of families in the family shelter system. And similarly, while 21% of all families in New York City are Black. They represent 53% of families in the city shelter system. So as I said, I'm the moderator. I'm from Citizens Committee for Children. I'm really pleased to be here. And I'm going to introduce our panelists now. Lourdes Corona is a lived expert on housing policy and is a mother of three living in New York City and has had nearly 10 years of experience in housing, homelessness, and childcare. Naomi Bethune is a lived expert and forming, former housing policy fellow with a bachelor's degree in childhood education. And we're so pleased that she's here with us today. Victoria Pearson is a lead therapist at Talk It Out Mental Health Counseling that provides multicultural, multi-ethnic, multilingual counseling to families, couples, and groups. And Jennifer Pringle is the project director at Advocates for Children of New York, and she's been working since 2002 to help students experiencing homelessness get access to the educational services and supports that they need. So we're really pleased that all of you have joined us here today. 
There are three segments of our panel discussion this morning. And after the first segment, we will have a pause for Q&A and we'll do the same after the third segment. So let's get started. The focus of this panel, as we said, is what happens in shelter uh, and how does that impact the educational and mental health needs of children and families. The first section of the panel is on mental health and behavioral health. So I'm gonna start with an open question directed first at Lourdes, Naomi, and Victoria. How are children's mental health, how is children's mental health impacted in, by residing in the shelter system? I'll start with other Lourdes and Naomi, and when you're finished, you can toss it to one of the other speakers. Um, based on experience, I can uh, admit or um, infer that most students, especially who experience homelessness, experience homelessness and are in shelters, one of their biggest um, issues is isolation and um, changing environment. So for myself, when I was in shelter the first time, I was 10. And the biggest thing that affected my mental health was um, school, being able to isolate in a different area compared to having a home that was consistent and I got help with homework and I got help with anything um, uh, concerning education. Whereas in the shelter, because there was a lot of back and forth with searching for an apartment and or seeking um, financial assistance, going back and forth to public assistance, there was very limited help, which resulted in me either having to depend on myself or utilize the help of teachers, which nine times out of 10 isn't at the best as the environment you've come from. And even when I was 16 and I went back in, again, with school, because um, mentally, having to wake up at 5 a.m. to get to school at 8 kind of was, like, traumatizing in a sense, because it felt like you're kind of growing up beforehand, and given the fact that I went into the shelter with a parent who wasn't necessarily educationally or emotionally equipped due to her um, mental illness, I was pushed into adulthood, so sometimes you kind of forget that you're not grown, like, you can do certain things that kids do, you can do certain things that um, aren't, aren't necessarily uh, adultish in a sense. I'm trying to find the correct words, but um, mentally, I think the biggest thing you deal with is learning how to adjust and how to um, put yourself in a new environment all alone, because it may seem as though because you have a roof over your head, it's going to be fine, but there's nothing like having your own space. And living in a building amongst so many people, depending on what shelter you're at, when there's so many families and there's so many personalities, it can be overwhelming, especially for a child. Um, I've never been there as an adult, but I can only assume it's just as bad seeing your kids in a situation and you wanna give them more, or you seek to, or you feel like you failed them. So um, speaking from a child perspective, it's dealing with new environments, being in school and having to confess to your friends that you don't have an apartment, you can have sleepovers and being a mother and or father and you have to explain to your child that, you know, this is only temporary, You're trying to convince them that this isn't a lifetime thing. So mentally, it can be overwhelming and overbearing. Lourdes, I wonder if from the perspective of a caregiver, if you might want to speak to how uh, the shelter environment impacts children's mental health from your point of view. Oop, you're on mute. You're still on mute, Lourdes, sorry. Yes, okay. perfect. 
Okay. Um, it impacted him really bad because of his behavior change. He acted out, um, became a daily thing with him. Um, it only didn't impact him, but also me. Um, before me, uh, for me, it was a, a do or die. Like, I didn't know what I, I didn't know how to handle him. I got very depressed um, behind his behavior. His behavior got so, um, it got so depressing that I didn't know how to punish him. Like, it took a dramatic, a dramatic turn. Um, just trying to learn how the way he was, he had ADHD. Um, like, when he was in school, it, it like, he started kicking, hitting, spitting. Um, like, it got, he was this sweet little boy. And when all this happened, it's like, he was dramatized. You know, now that he's about to be 10, he tells me, he tells me now, mommy, I don't want to be there. You know, thank God I'm not there now. But for him, it was a scary experience. Thank you for sharing. I wonder, Victoria, if you could talk a little bit from a clinical perspective about the impact of the shelter experience on, on children and their caregivers. Absolutely. And um, good morning, ladies. And uh, Naomi and Lourdes, I want to applaud you um, definitely um, for your courage and tenacity, um, having ex had the experience. And so one of the major issues, and it, it um, speaks directly to uh, Lourdes and her experience with her son, is the fear. The fear of the uncertainty, the anxiety um, that the fear begets along with the aggression. And it's all connected, right? I'm afraid. And so I don't know, you know, from one minute to the next, am I going to be displaced? Am I going to be in another school? Am I, you know, do I have new friends? Will I be bullied? You know, will I be able to catch up in terms of my education? So it has a dramatic impact on children. And I think that oftentimes teachers and other helping professionals and caregivers are not equipped to, to understand and they need the information. They need the information about the children and about their history so that they can help to soothe them as they come into um, or try to navigate through different social systems. And school is one of them. And so, you know, navigating through that and, and not knowing, you know, um, where you're going to lay your head, if the environment where you're going to lay your head is going to be safe, um, is very traumatic. And so um, I think that's the, and we see it differently. Like we see it, oh, the, the child is acting out, you know, um, they can't behave. No, that's not the whole picture, right? In the moment, but if you're not equipped to handle, you know, this behavior and you don't have first and foremost, the information, right? About the history of the child, then that's your immediate assumption. And oftentimes that's detrimental. Thank you. I think this pivots nicely to the question around really what supports and resources are available for children um, while in shelter. And I wondered, um, Victoria and Jennifer, if you might want to speak to that. Jennifer Pringle, sorry. Okay. So I, I can start off. Um, First of all, I want to say thank you to the Family Homelessness Coalition for um, including me in this panel and also just huge thanks to Lourdes and Naomi for sharing 
and opening themselves up and about their own lives and their own experiences. Um, I think it's so incredibly important to um, educate others um, about the experiences that families face um, and also to build community with each other, um, knowing that these experiences are shared um, and again, to the point about isolation, you know, one thing that we hear over and over again from young people is just how, how isolating it is um, and how alone um, young people feel and, um, you know, how that then in turn obviously impacts um, how they're showing up at school, um, their ability to connect and maintain relationships with other people. Um, again, back to what um, uh uh, Victoria was sharing about the fear, um, not knowing what's coming next. Like your, your, your stress response is just on high alert all the time. So that when a teacher um, maybe says, you know, today we're going to do something different. We're going to do blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden the kid just is like blows up. Like, what do you mean? Like, this is the one place I thought I could expect the same thing every day. And now you're telling me we're going to do something new. And you just... And the teacher's like, <laughs> you know, what's going on here? You know, this, you're, you know, why are you, why are you having this tantrum over this seemingly small thing? But that's why it's so critical that teachers understand um, what families are going through and that lack of stability and how important it is to know what those routines are because that gives you that sense of security. Um, and also like self-regulation, I know what's coming next. I can anticipate this next thing. And so when schools change up the schedule, um, change up the activities, that can be incredibly destabilizing for, for young people um, experiencing homelessness. So again, like one thing that educators can do is understand what families are going through outside of school so that they can be in a better position to support um, students and families. Um, in terms of um, resources that are available, um, the Department of Education has the Students in Temporary Housing team. That is um, the Students in Temporary Housing Family Assistants who are in most family shelters. Um, and they also have regional managers, Students in Temporary Housing regional managers who are in the borough offices. Um, they help families with enrollment, setting up transportation. Um, they also uh, provide programming during school breaks um, and activities uh, for young people and their family. They also provide enrichment supports in certain schools as well. There's also in some schools, they have uh, students in temporary housing community coordinators and bridging the gap social workers. Those staff are placed in schools that have larger numbers of students experiencing homelessness. Um, there's also just another thing that I want to point out, there was a recent change in city policy and a lot of folks may not be aware that um, there are um, childcare is also available in terms of supports. One of the things that um, Naomi mentioned is there, the adultification of, of young people. And a big thing that we see a part of this is taking care of younger siblings. Um, parents um, in shelter have a ton of appointments they, that they have to attend to. And that often means that older siblings are responsible for younger siblings. Um, one thing that the city has changed 
uh, relatively recently is that um, childcare vouchers are now available to families experiencing homelessness, even if they don't meet uh, the work or education requirements or participation requirements. Um, but a lot of folks don't know this. A lot of folks don't know that this is available to families. Um, so, you know, a big part is, is um, uh, you know, parents shouldn't have to ask for help. You know, uh, it, it should be offered to them. Um, and they should be told, you know, here are all the services that are available to you. How can I help connect you with them? Um, and unfortunately, childcare is one of those issues that, that still more work needs to be done to help better connect uh, parents with that. Um, there's also um, uh, there's also some summer programming available. Um, uh, that, there's the SYEP program and Summer Rising. Students in temporary housing got priority for those programs, um, but unfortunately, there simply weren't enough seats for all the students uh, who were interested in that. I could keep going, but I'm going to stop for a second and pass it over to Victoria. Thank you, Jennifer. And um, I think it's good to know about those programs, but I also want to speak to, um, I did a, a art therapy workshop and I was the, um, I guess the therapist on call as the children um, or young adults um, issues came up and it was in um, safe space, which is um, um, an offshoot of New Horizons. And um, what happens is Safe Space, it was a place, and it is, it's still on, is it's off Jamaica Avenue, where um, children who have aged out of foster care, they become homeless. And I don't see enough programs that address that issue because once they age out of foster care, um, if, if no one has prepared a place for them to go at like 18, 19, then they're out on the streets and their children too. And so programs like what we did was we brought in, um, young lady got a grant, very young lady, she got a grant to come in and provide um, art therapy. Um, another, um, um, and, and that was not only was it, um, you know, fulfilling for the um, individuals in safe space. And safe space is only a week or two that you're placed in. Hopefully, they can find housing for you um, as a as a teenage, almost adult, right? Who now has been just displaced and put out on the street. And so. Um, she got the grant and you can only stay, as I said, in safe space about two weeks. And it was so self-esteem building, right? And like they would, they, we did arts and crafts, we did clay, we did painting. And then, I mean, they were so creative. Um, it was also, and so what we did is um, a group of women and she, uh, a friend of mine has another um, not-for-profit that she just developed on her own. We went back in, we took shoes, we took clothes, um, we, we um, you know, did a pop-up shop for haircuts for the boys. We went around and we just got clothes. Whatever you can do, right, to help on an individual. I'm talking about the you know, the giant um, municipalities that come in and, and say, you know, give money. And sometimes we don't know what happened to the money, right? But um, we want to make sure that in the communities, you know, even if you buy, an, and I know Sandy says this all the time, that even if you buy two boxes of pizza and you stand out on the corner and just give out, you know, slices of pizza, anything that you can do to help. The other thing is to diffuse the stigma of counseling. 
And when one of the ways we diffuse the stigma of counseling is to go to counseling ourselves. Oftentimes, as helping professionals, we have issues. We take them into our professions and we think that we're okay because we're a helping professional. But we need to have a release, a cathartic release of all of this energy that is coming into us that is hurt, that is pain, that is struggle. Like, you can't tell me, and I've been doing this for about 20, 25 years, that that doesn't affect the way you show up in the room with the people that you work with. And so you have to have a place where to take it. And, and then I share with my staff, I'm also working with um, Harlem Children's Zone. And if you're familiar with Jeffrey Canada, he takes... Um, he takes at-risk mothers, right, who are um, babies in the womb, right, and he nurtures them all the way through college. And what I have right now is the interns that are college-bound, that are either in college. I have a young lady right now who just asked me, she's been working with me for the summer, amazing. And and they they pay them as interns and they put them in different places where they want to be. And so I told um, I told the uh, director, um, Del Kenya, that I'll take as many as she has to give me as they vet. Right. And we vet them. We interview them because the young ladies and I'm hoping for some 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 young men, too, that we've gotten so far have been amazing. And this is because what. They've been nurtured um, from the onset when they get into this program. So programs like Harlem Children's Zone that are nurturing. I have a young lady now, she's coming in. What she said on the interview was that Harlem Children's Zone saved her life because she was, um, you know, hanging out with a bad crowd in, um, I think, junior high school. Somebody said, go over here. They have an after school program. And that's another thing. We don't have enough of these after school programs, programs where they can go, you know, um, young people rather than go back to the shelter that have organized play they have pool tables they have groups the other thing is um you know support groups where they can sit around you know with a facilitator and talk about how they feel so there's i have you know there's a lot of stuff out there there's also a lot of ideas but to make sure also quality assurance to make sure that these programs are doing what they say they're going to do right going in and holding the directors accountable holding individuals accountable that are that are managing these programs and making sure that these children and also those that have just aged out that are 18 and 19 are getting the services that we say these out these outlier agencies are supposed to provide so that's some of the stuff that you know we can do and as individuals we can always do something we can always do something to help Thanks, Victoria. So before we turn to questions for this section, I just wanted to allow Naomi and Lourdes to close out if you have thoughts on how we can better support parent caregivers uh, who have children with behavioral health uh, or mental health concerns um, so that those young children can succeed and engage successfully in school. If you have any thoughts on, on what you believe might be helpful in this space, please share them. Um, I will personally say that the best way to help is to have intentionality. Um, a lot of people come just to do their job, like just to make sure there's no fighting in the shelter, to make sure everybody is going to breakfast and lunch. But there has to be some type of mindset which makes you want to like interfere where you see it. A lot of people don't speak up when they see that the mom or the dad isn't necessarily like they may not be abusive, but they may not be the best as far as um, keeping the child equipped in school and keeping the child like 
above water in certain areas outside of finance and um food and things of that nature that's to be like this line where you say it's more to helping people in the shelter than just providing food and shelter um for instance my mom she has schizophrenia and a living disability but because my mom wasn't like physically abusive to me or she wasn't like dragged me around the shelter there was never any need for anybody to say like oh let me see what she needs help with because as long as you can't see it it's easier to avoid it if, if that makes sense so there has to be the mindset where you say okay I see this obviously some type of disconnect there might there might not necessarily be a disconnect that will cause me to call CPS but there's a disconnect in which the child isn't necessarily receiving everything that a child is supposed to get so I didn't get after school programs I didn't get any like assistance outside of public assistance because I wasn't really going through anything that they feel is necessary for a child to get into uh, uh, help with, if that makes sense. Like I wasn't going through anything that necessarily demanded them to report it. So, you know, like some, all social workers, they're required to report certain things, but certain things they're not required to do. So there has to be an instance where we're not worried about requirements, but necessity in a sense. Um, if I were to get a, 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 a school bus available to me, that would have been great so I wouldn't have to wake up early if I were to get after school program it would an after school program it would have been better for me because I wouldn't have suffered educationally as much as I did had I had that type of help so there has to be some type of intuition I think um in shelters they need to focus more on hiring hiring people who are, go beyond paper they need to have a heart to help people basically thank you Naomi Lourdes did you have any closing thoughts? We're having a hard time hearing you. Can you hear me now? Yes. Okay, I'm sorry. Um, I think Naomi pretty much uh, said everything. You know, there's not a lot of people that do their job correctly and they should like have more people that want to do the job. It's not only about the pay, you know, um, and they should do whatever needs, whatever needs to be done to help others. Um, like in my case, I really didn't need a lot. Um, the only thing I really needed was help for my son. And I got that, you know, but the school, he did, we lived close enough to a school that we could just walk. But um, Naomi pretty much said enough of, you know, I said enough. So that's pretty much it. Thank you. I had one follow-up question for uh, Jennifer Pringle. How do we ensure that the teachers and the school system have the information they need so that they actually can be intentional about making sure the students and parents have the support required? Um, one of the questions that came up was concern around maybe privacy and confidentiality. It's not always obvious who needs that extra outreach and support. Yeah, I, I think there are two, um, two different things that come to mind. First is um, Department of Homeless Services and the DOE have a data sharing agreement. So DOE already knows which students are in shelter um, on a like big level that information is available, but how do schools actually use that and who's using it is so critically important. Um, teachers don't need to know everything about what's going on. There's some teachers who are more sensitive and better equipped to handle that information than others. 
Um, there, so if from um, a school building perspective, I think at the it's some schools have implemented something called like a star student or um, extra attention student, where they flag students that teachers should be aware that something's going on outside of school. They're not necessarily told what it is, but something is going on outside of school and that the teacher should give extra attention to those students or be mindful that um, th those students are going through a hard time so that they can adjust what supports they're giving in the classroom to those students. So they're not sharing everything, all the details um, with the teacher. They're just letting the teacher know something's going on. You know, something's going on with Jenny. Just make sure you you check in with her and give her that extra attention and understanding. Um, and then what I would say is if you have someone at the building level, like the principal who's speaking with their team and then say, okay, these are the, the students I want you to individually check in, or these are the parents I want you to reach out to and say, how can we help? Um, but again, that comes by like building by building. Every building is different in terms of their staffing, in terms of who that staffing is. There's some teachers that not in a million years would I tell them that kind of sensitive information because they're just not in a good position to handle that with sensitivity. There's others that I think would do an amazing job. I think it really depends. Um, but in terms of a privacy issue, there's like what the law requires in terms of sharing that information. And yes, teachers can, it's legally okay to share that information, but in terms of best practices, the principal needs to be mindful of like, is this a good idea? Do I think the, the teacher is going to handle this information with sensitivity and care? Um, also too, when talking to parents, um, I. I, it also depends on the age of the student as well, how you're engaging with them, but also asking parents permission um, as well. And so they're giving some type of agency and control. Um, so much about being in shelter is dehumanizing and stripping away your power and control over your family. Um, so schools should not be a part of that um, and should uh, as much as possible, make sure that parents um, have control over that information and uh, who it's shared with. Thank you. So in the interest of time, we're going to move to the second section of our panel discussion. And I'll just let people know that have shared questions in the chat that will respond to the questions in a follow-up email related to access to childcare and, and a list of mental health resources. So the next section of the panel discussion is really about parent engagement in um, school, um, uh, in, in the educational um, progress of their children. So the, the first question, Jennifer, I'm going to turn back to you to talk a little bit about how the pandemic affected children in shelter and, and whether or not that's begun to improve since the COVID pandemic has started to decline. Um, well, one of the biggest issues when the pandemic hit, when everything went remote, was, you know, access to Wi-Fi. Family shelters did not have internet access, so many, many students and shelter had no way of participating in school. Um, uh, the, fortunately, most family shelters now have access to Wi-Fi. Um, there's a handful of shelters that still don't have it, including the HPD shelters still don't have Wi-Fi, um, but the DHS shelter, family shelters do. 
Um, again, back to what Naomi was saying about the isolation issue. I mean, that was just out of control during the pandemic. Um, and, you know, we heard from young people who were struggling with isolation before, and then just it got magnified during that. And I think that's why um, that, you know, relationships are so critical. Um, and when the pandemic hit, the DOE shelter-based staff were no longer at the shelters. Um, and so it, um, you know, it is so critical to, to have that DOE shelter-based support um, to help um, connect with, with, with parents and with young people um, to make sure they have the supports that they, they need. Um, uh, another thing too is uh, after the pandemic, they started special education recovery services, that which was last year. Um, and th that was a way to get makeup services. But again, a big issue was transportation to the extent that those services were at, offered after school. Um, there was only busing during uh, their traditional school hours. So it was up to parents to, <laughs> to figure that out. And as Naomi mentioned about the after school, that's a huge issue. Um, yes, the after school may be available, but if you have no way of getting back to the shelter, um, that that's effectively means you can't participate. And with 40% of families placed in shelter in a different borough from where their kids are going to school, Parents oftentimes are put in that really tough position between deciding between do I want my kids to have that stability with the same school or should I be transferring them to the local school so that they can have a better chance of, for example, participating in after school. And it's, you know, it's a horrible trade-off because, uh, again, you're really striving for keeping some type of stability um, and continuity for, for young people. Thank you. I wonder, um, Lourdes and Naomi, if you want to speak a little bit to the process you experienced at PATH from PATH and then engaging in education or a school placement, um, just what that experience was like for you, if, if you feel comfortable sharing. Um, PATH alone is like being in a, like a tumultuous state for, for hours and hours and hours. Um, both times I went, it, I was there for like all day, all day and both times I had to go to like an overnight shelter and it was like being in a, like a tornado full of people. It's very uncomfortable and very overwhelming. Um, a lot of times they don't have any resources to keep kids occupied or to keep them like just busy. So there's a whole bunch of kids crying and complaining and it's not something that you would want to experience, especially if you have a little baby. I can only imagine if like you had to be there with your newborn. It, it can be better. Um, it can definitely be better. There's no excuse as to why it's like a can of sardines full of people when there's so much they could do to keep it from being so, so overwhelming and overbearing. It feels like you're being thrown into uh, a, uh, a spin cycle in a sense. It's very traumatizing. And then with PATH, they don't take into consideration like um, your life or the lifestyle prior to being into the shelter. So everything I did was in Brooklyn prior to being into the shelter. And they asked you like, oh, where's your school? And where did your family live? But they placed me in the Bronx. So it's kind of pointless sometimes when they ask you all of these 
um, biographic questions and try to make it seem like they're interested in that when in all actuality, just gonna, they're just going to place you in a place that was most convenient. And because when I went, I was like 15 or 16, they didn't, they felt like I could, you know, handle the route, which I ended up almost dropping out of school. But nevertheless, um, I think they can definitely do better with PATH um, as far as allowing people to feel like they're not coming in here and it's going to be a dreadful situation. It's kind of like, uh, it's worse than actually, it's actually worse than going into the public assistance office. And that is a very uh, oof place. But with PATH, there's always that like, you feel like you're an inconvenience to the people. There's nine times out of 10, you're going to come across a staff member who has a bad attitude. You're going to come across someone who talks down to you because they feel like, oh, they hear these people go, these low lives. It feels like they're trying to um, characterize you or put you in the box because you're here when you never know where people are coming from. People come from amazing families. They have everything. And then one day their house is on fire or one day their spouse kicks them out and they have nothing. You know, that's the person they depended on. Or one day their mother, you will be surprised how many parents allow their kids to be on the streets once they're 18. Um, and as far as education-wise, the biggest adjust adjustment that they could make is, um, again, like I said earlier, having intentionality, like allow allowing themselves to just put into perspective that perspective that a lifestyle change can also affect your your school change. Um, me personally, bullying was a big thing when I first went into the shelter. As kids, you feel comfortable with your friends. You tell them certain things, and I ended up telling my friends that I was in the shelter. And for weeks, I was teased for like bed bugs and germs, and I was traumatized for weeks of, by people who I thought were my friends. And as a, a kid, you don't think like your friends are going to do these things, but can't expect too much from kids. I think that has to be that type of interference that um, they equip teachers and counselors and principals and just staff in general to prepare themselves for the hopefully minimum students that come in and are experiencing homelessness or are experiencing low-income families. They could definitely be an improvement with that. Thank you, Naomi. Lourdes, I don't know if you wanted to add anything about the journey from PATH to education placement and how that was experienced for you. Um, at the beginning, it was very rough for me. Um, I was all the way in Queens and everything was like really, really, really far. I had to take buses, trains to get to where I needed to get at. Um, but then I had to go back to PATH because I wasn't eligible. Um, within the first five days, I have to go back. Um, like, it was a disaster and a half. I was with my son and, like, having a child with ADHD that doesn't stay still and anything like that, it was hard. But um, after that, they um, moved me to the, to the Bronx, which I thank God for that one, because everything was closed. Like, for example, the schools, uh, daycare, stores, um, like therapies, anything, everything like that, like even parks, everything was closed. It was walking distance. I didn't have to worry about getting on a bus or a train to get from point A to point B because everything was walking distance, you know, and especially the schools. Like I had a daycare, like a block behind me. Um, and then the school that he went to after uh, pre-K, it was like two blocks in front of where I was living at. So I, it, it was a journey, believe it or not, it was a journey. It was a scary journey, but um, 
thank God that, that right now that all that is behind me and my son is doing a whole lot better. Thank you. It sounds like from your story arc, both of you, that it is almost like a luck of the draw. Are you placed in close proximity to your school of origin and support systems that you're familiar with or not? I wondered if you might want to talk a little bit about just where children in shelter spend most of their time and are there particular shelter policies that impact the ability of, of children uh, to engage in extracurricular activities? I, I personally spent most of my time either, as long as I was outside of the shelter, that's why I spent most of my time. Unfortunately for me, when I went the second time, I was a teenager, so I was a bit older and able to travel. But of course, I couldn't do as much as I wanted due to the distance from my family and the shelter. But I think a lot of times, especially for teenagers, I can't necessarily speak for kids because when I was a kid, my grandmother like was with me. So she was the, the, the one who determined where I went. But especially for teenagers, they try to spend most of their time with their friends. They try to spend most of their time in an area where they feel it's normal, if so to speak. Um, so me personally, it feels like you're in a different dimension. When you're not in the shelter, it feels like you have a sense of like leverage or a sense of freedom. Like everything is not real. It's like a, a virtual reality if if you want to keep it that way. Um, so you kind of try to avoid being there as much as you can. You'll spend a night as much as you can. If you could stay at your family's house, you're going to do that. If you could stay at school for how long, you're going to do that. I was in almost every program in my school just to keep myself equipped. I spent hours downtown just walking around my friends until the sunset because you really don't want to be reminded of certain things. Being in that room, it feels like you're in a prison that you have ability to get out of, but you always have to come back. And because it was just one room with me and my mother, um, you know, it gets boring, it gets tiring. And as a young person, your mind starts to wonder, like it feels like you're trapped in a sense. And um, the second question bypassed me, but yeah, I think a lot of times, uh, especially for children, they avoid the shelter as much as they can. And if there was a, a, a sense of foundation in the shelter, I think people wouldn't mind being there. It would probably feel um, safer for them to be there or probably feel, um, more family oriented it, it was a welcoming place the shelter isn't necessarily always welcoming you don't feel embraced it feels like okay we're going to get you out of here as quick as we can it's not necessarily a place where it's like okay you can stay here and it doesn't feel like a shelter in a sense it just feels like a box thank you well it's a place to reside and not not a home right um lourdes i didn't know if you had any thoughts on where kids spend most of their time while, while in shelter in, in relation to the discussion around the ability to engage in educational and extracurricular activities? Uh, with him, it wasn't really that bad. Um, he used to go to after school programs, um, like he would get out of five or six. But then after that, like on the weekends and on Fridays, I would try to get him out the house you know, to, you know, to spend more time outside than being indoors and having to deal with the other kids in the like in the um, building because some of some of the kids were a lot older. Um, but I also was trying to help him like get out and, and um interact with other kids because when he was in the school, like he would fight with other kids. So I was trying to help him out in other ways like look you go outside you go to the park you, like you can't fight with everybody 
with the other kids. You need to learn how to play with others nicely and not get in trouble. And, you know, it was hard. It was hard because I was a single mother then. I'm still a single mother now. Um, but it was hard for me trying to give him, like, the... I have to show him the tough love. You know, I, you know, some mothers are very soft and they're like, oh, no, don't worry about it. Things are going to be okay. Me, I have to be both papers. I have to be the man and the, the, the father and the mother all at once. You know, it was difficult. But most of the time he would be in school, then the other part would be um, in a park playing around with the other kids. And, you know, sometimes I have to use that as a reward system for him because um, the way he was behaving during school, I would have to tell him, look, um, if you do good at school, I'll do this for you. And sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't, but for the most part, it really didn't affect him. Thank you. I didn't know if Jennifer or Victoria had anything to add around just the importance of extracurriculars in the, in the life of a child and, and caregivers who are residing in shelter. Um, Victoria, you do you want to speak? Okay, I'm trying to unmute. Hold on, <laughs> trying to unmute. Can you hear me? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, and so, um, absolutely, I think that, um one of the things we can do as helping professionals um, most, and I think that um, um, one of the young ladies said it, is um, to have conversations amongst ourselves about what we can do, you know, and how um, devastating the impact is to other human beings, not knowing whether or not you are going to have a roof over your head from day to day. And Maslow talks about, you know, this being one of just the basic human needs, right? Uh, necessities for survival. And um, we need to realize that as, so, as helping professionals. I think that some of the extracurricular activities um, that we can assist in is if you have an opportunity to do something like, you know, be a part of an initiative for self-esteem building, like the art therapy workshop, like going into um, some of the shelters and doing pop-up shops, maybe with clothes or haircuts or, you know, sneakers or whatever we can do to to um, like just kind of reach out and let these uh, children and the parents too know that, you know, somebody cares because we all want to know that someone cares about us, you know, um, especially when you're going through hard times. And we've had, um, you know, individuals um, when I worked at the uh, crisis center, as well as, um, you know, doing the work with um, Safe Space and New Horizons, who just, and I think Lord has said it, or was it uh, the other, Naomi, that these are people that had had homes at one point. It wasn't like they were raised, you know, being homeless. And then all of a sudden, sudden something happened devastating in their lives and they became homeless. And so I, you know, it's hard to imagine the impact that kind of trauma could have on not just the adult, but the children. Like I had my own room. I had, you know, I had friends, I had a neighborhood, you know, I had a school and now I have nothing. 
And so we, I think the empathy, you know, um, as helping professionals for us to try to understand that when a kid is acting out who has been displaced, like um, the best thing we can do aside from judging them or thinking that they're ruining our day because we have to deal with them is to be empathic and try to understand that he is a person, right? That once had a home, you know, um, they came from somewhere, right? And a lot of them had homes and that they no longer have a home. And so the fear, the anxiety and the trauma, that's where the aggression comes from. And so um, I think we, we need to work harder and do better. And I'm talking about myself, you know, I need to work harder, do better. And we all in these helping professional professions need to try to um, have support. Support groups are wonderful, facilitating support groups for them where they can kind of, and that's why I named the company um, Talk It Out because talking is cathartic you know, conversations and not being afraid to ask the hard questions is everything. And I think uh, Lord has talked about it um, or Naomi, is everything okay? Is everything okay? And then not go about your day, but then take a moment to listen and you make your silence at first, but keep your ears open and they'll talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. So we're going to pivot to the very last section of the panel discussion. And then afterward, we'll have a few moments for questions. So this last section is really talking about um, the educational experience of, of children and whether or not the, their, their learning is impacted positively or negatively while they're residing in shelter. So um, I'm going to turn it first to um, Naomi and then Lourdes to just talk about the experience uh, in shelter and, and that impact on your academic journey. A decline in education is inevitable when it comes to kids, especially if you don't have a parent who not necessarily doesn't want to be hands-on, but doesn't have the ability to be overbearing because there's always gonna be a difference when you are um, relocating. And at that moment, your parent has to be more than what they were prior. And nine times out of 10, they can't be more of a, a hands-on helicopter parent because they're trying to get you out of the shelter. Me personally, when I went both times, I declined educationally drastically. And because of the educational history I had prior to that, it was very noticeable. Like, what's going on? This is not who you are. And even if you aren't declining edu educationally, there's always going to be a sense of declining in the school environment. So it may not be your grades, but it may be your attitude. Um, when I was in high school and I went to the shelter, my grades stayed, af stayed afloat because I was able to do homework on the bus. And I found a way to hand in assignments, but I got in a lot of trouble. I had a lot of tension. I slept a lot in class because waking up at 5 a.m. at 16, 17, and 18 was hard. Um, it takes a lot out of you to do things that require a level of maturity. I'm sure at 30 and 40, you have the ability to set your schedule and put yourself to sleep seven or eight hours before 5 a.m. Whereas a young person, you don't have it in your mind. You just know you have to be up at that certain time. There's no mental uh, 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 conscience to say, okay, let me go to bed at a decent time. So even if your grades aren't flocking, you're, you're going to decline in some department concerning school. So a lot of times behavior was an issue, a huge issue for me. And even some people who I know went into shelter, they became very snarky, very easy to 
um, draw the anger, very quick to snap at the tongue. And I know myself personally, I was easily triggered by anything. I couldn't be called stupid. I couldn't be called a bum. Even if it was a joke, it triggered me because in a sense, you may not know, or my peer may not know what I'm going through, but because in the back of my mind is like, I'm, a, I'm in a shelter, maybe I am a bum, or maybe I am stupid, or maybe this. It's always going to be something in the school department that is going to decrease because all you are focused on, or even if you aren't supposed to be focused on it, all you are focused on is the environment you're in. It's always going to, it's like, it haunts you in a sense. It's always going to be on your shoulder reminding you. So whether it be with your grades or whether it be with your behavior, there's always going to be a point where if you had good history in school, it's going to be noticeable. It's go Or if your parent knows you really well, it's going to be uh, a point where they see like, okay, this is changing. So um, with moving in the shelter and then having to also keep your past life, I guess, especially if you are staying in the school you, you were in prior to being in the shelter, there's always going to be that two live thing. Like me personally, for years in high school, I didn't tell anyone I was in the shelter because it felt like uh, uh, there was going to be a change in every area. So with school, if you went to the same school prior to the shelter, that's the only thing in your life that feels the same. And when it feels like it's not the same, you're going to either act out, show out, or some people unfortunately drop out. So it's definitely going to be a major difference in your educational area. Thank you, Naomi. Lourdes, I didn't know if you wanted to talk a little bit about from the caregiver's perspective, how um, the shelter experience impacted your son's academics. I mean, it was bad, like with him, um, his attitude, his personality changed. He went from being a sweet kid to, you know, acting out, like trying to get somewhere, trying to get some type of attention from somebody. And at the time, I didn't know that he was ADHD, that he had ADHD, sorry. You know, so I thought it was just him being a kid, you know, being a two-year-old toddler who just wanted to act out and put his tantrum every time he said no. But at the end, um, when I finally figured it out, I'm like, oh my God, what did I do wrong? I messed up from not seeing all the signs I was there. You know, like seeing him like that, I cried. I, you know, broke down many of times behind it, you know, trying to see what can I do to help him out. And at the time it was like, I don't want to put him on medication, but I had no choice, you know? So it was difficult. It was really hard for just, you know, having a child at the moment that you don't even know what's really going on until you actually seek the help. And it really did a, a lot of damage to him, you know, just being out of the justice system, having something to call home, to being into one and his whole life just changed out of nowhere, you know? And, and just even speaking about it now makes me choke up a little bit, you know, because it's something that happened to the both of us and it's not an easy journey. I'm sorry, guys. Well, I just want to thank you both for being so fearless and sharing that experience. And I wanted to turn to Jennifer Pringle to talk a little bit about just what tools for children in shelter and supplemental needs at school exist and, and, and what's really out there to help parents and care, caregivers and, and students navigate this experience. 
Um, I also just want to thank uh, Lourdes and Naomi again, just for sharing your experiences and opening yourselves up like that and for your bravery around that. Um, it is just, thank you. Um, I think one of the things that Naomi mentioned um, was, you know, everyone handles these transitions in, in their own way. And sometimes school is a place where you just, you don't want to be asked about what's going on. You, 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 you want school to be school. You don't want to share with other people about what's going on outside of school. And I think that's where it's so important back to what Victoria was saying about really being a good listener as an educator. If a student doesn't want to talk about it, don't talk about it. <laughs> like if schools are one place where they want to focus on their relationships with their peers, their classes, and they don't want to talk about what's going on outside of school, then don't talk about it. Don't push it. I think one of the things that I have heard from young people um, um, a lot is um, don't lower your expectations for me. You know, things may be going on outside of school, but that doesn't mean I'm stupid. That doesn't mean I can't handle the work. And I need understanding too. So the combination of like, understand that I may ask to hand this in a different way or at a different time, but I can still do it. I just need some more understanding about how I'm going to get this work done. As, um, that's one thing that, um, um, uh, that, that we've heard from, from young people um, that has um, the validation that, yes, you can handle this work. And yes, I expect a very high level of achievement. And I know that, you know, you're commuting a really long way and you may need to take a nap in the morning and that's okay. And I'm going to find an office where you can take a nap in the morning and you'll have an energy bar waiting for you when you wake up and go to class. Um, just another thing um, about the long commutes that I didn't point out before is that families can absolutely request shelter transfers to be closer to their, uh, so families can be closer to the schools that their kids attend. Um, for a long time, you could only get a, a shelter transfer for a safety or a medical reason, but families can absolutely request shelter transfers to be closer to their kids' school. Their shelters in all five boroughs, um, and if there's space available in a shelter closer uh, to the school, then families can be transferred there. Um, it does take advocacy. Um, you know, you can put in the request, but it takes follow-up um, because they're always looking at the um, bed availability every night, and that's constantly changing. Um, in terms of supports available, I wanted to do a shout out to Brooklyn North's um, Simba and Asset program. This is run by the uh, Students and Temporary Housing Regional Manager. Um, it is a program, uh, Simba is a program for young men. Asset is a program for young women um, uh, who have experienced homelessness. And also they have this a phenomenal alumni um, group where um, they bring back young people who've gone on to college, graduated, are working so that they can show like you too will get through this. Um, this doesn't define you. Um, this doesn't define uh, what you can do with your life going forward. And they do college trips um, and mentoring. Um, yeah, again, uh, activities during school breaks. They're uh, really phenomenal um, support for many uh, young people. Um, in terms of 
um, you know, who to reach out to. Again, I think the Students in Temporary Housing Regional Manager, that is the go-to to find out what kind of programs and supports are available to students in temporary housing. And then also every school has what's called a, a Students in Temporary Housing School-Based Liaison. Um, and they, um, they should have access to funding specifically for students experiencing homelessness. So if there's additional, like let's say you go to a school that has a uniform or a dress code, they can help out in um, getting uh, school appropriate school clothes. Um, or if, you're if your child is, is struggling and needs some extra tutoring or support, they can help coordinate that. Um, and also, in terms of where else parents can go, um, there's the Department of Education has a, um, a, a special education um, hotline. There's a, more than 30% of students in shelter have IEPs. And oftentimes you're talking about students, again, going long distances, so you have transportation issues, or you're talking about transferring schools and getting the services in place in the new school. So if there's issues around that, you can call the special education hotline. Um, I'm from an organization called Advocates for Children. We also have a helpline. I can put that in the um, in the Q&A where uh, parents can call uh, with questions. Um, and we provide um, advocacy services to, to, to parents um, around that. There's also two when um, there's family welcome centers. So if you are, um, again, placed in a shelter, or let's say you didn't have a good experience in, in your high school and you want to transfer to a, another high school um, that is closer to the shelter. Um, the Family Welcome Center, all students in temporary housing can transfer high schools. You can go to your Family Welcome Center, and I can put the link there in the chat about uh, where to find that contact information, and they can help out with that process as well. There's also, as I mentioned before, there's the students in temporary housing um, community coordinators and bridging the gap social workers in some and not nearly enough all uh, 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 schools, but in, in certain schools, they also have those um, shelter uh, uh, school-based supports. Thank you. And I would just say for everyone um, joining today, in response to this webinar, we can circulate the webinar link and then a list of key resources and contacts, which would be helpful for everyone. Um, Victoria, I didn't know if you wanted to add anything about resources at the community level. Um, that you think critical to support caregivers and their engagement in children's education. Yes, um, thank you. And this, let me just say that this has been amazing. Um, Naomi Lourdes, I so applaud you and I am so proud of you, you know, um, for the work that you're continuing to do, um, you know, just showing up and talking about your experience. And I also want to thank Jennifer for saying that listening is so impactful for someone, anyone that's struggling in life. Um, they really sometimes just want to be heard. Um, on a community level, as I said, um, of course, we have, um, you know, uh, newer New Horizons, um, safe space for those who have aged out. Um, of course, you have my office, which is talking about mental health counseling, and that's 718-500-5549. And um, we take most insurances. Um, also, you can just call uh, connecting with um, 
programs that also have internships. I think that sometimes, uh, you know, even the SYEP program is amazing because it gives these children particularly, and I don't think because you're in a shelter, you shouldn't do the summer youth employment program. I think that should be available too for those who are um, of age because this gives them opportunity to feel useful. We have to employ opportunities to build self-esteem. Self-esteem building when you're in, when you're in crisis or you've um, experienced trauma is so important to know that you can carry on and that you can continue in life even though you've had a bad thing happen to you, um, particularly being homeless. So I think on a community level um, as well, the school, you know, DOE is doing everything I believe that they can. But again, I talked about those quality assurances to make sure the people in places that are supposed to be providing services and ensuring that these children get what they need, that they're held accountable. Accountability is really important, you know, um, and, and that's really it. I think, you know, we all, we all have a hand in it. We all have um, a responsibility, you know, to help in any way we can and just to continue on the quest that we're on, you know, helping one person at a time. Thank you. Thank you. So I'm going to um, kind of ask one last broad question, and then each of you can kind of add any closing thoughts that you have. Um, our last question is really to think about what are the creative ways that you think we should be thinking of disseminating information to people uh, to ensure that we're reaching folks that need it most on the resources that people can avail themselves of to support um, parent engagement and education and access to health and mental health services for kids and families in shelter. Are there any ideas that come to mind on effective ways to disseminate resource information? And I'm opening it up to all of you. Uh, I just wanted to say the first thing I can think of is social media. Everybody is on social media, right? The reels, the, you know, the timelines, the social media, um, and, and then having those, um, you know, those brief, because we're, you know, overstimulated visually and auditorially, but particularly visually on some of these social media sites, but the pop-ups, because we, you know, programmed our, our brains, our eyes to kind of see stuff and capture stuff. So to have um, some creative social media um, informationals, that come up about resources, I think that's, that's one way because everybody is constantly on their phones. Thank you. Anybody else have some ideas? I definitely agree with that. Social media is a stepping stone. I was going to say it, um, but yeah, I would agree with social media mainly because it's a source that every age bracket is consuming. So it's not something that may have like a limitation. Literally, people are five having TikToks and YouTube pages. So I can only imagine what in a, how many adults or teenagers may be use, utilizing social media. So I think it's a very powerful source if it's used correctly. Um, and I honestly agree with the rails and things as far as um, sponsorships really come in handy on social media. You would be surprised how many um, people discover programs and equipment and uh, businesses and cosmetology schools and everything, anything in the, in, in the universe, um, because they've seen an, a TikToker or an Instagram girl or someone else use it or speak about it. There's so many oils and, and phones and sneakers that people put their money into because they've seen a, a sponsor or 
their favorite TikTok or Charlie and all these other popular people use them. So I think social media can be a stepping ground as long as it's used wisely and as long as it's consistent. When you see something consistently, you'll eventually be like, okay, let me just click on it because it it must be something good, especially if a peer or somebody you know or somebody you follow is frequently speaking of it. So I agree with that. Jen or Lourdes, you don't have to add if you don't have ideas, but you're welcome to. No, I wasn't saying I agree with Naomi and Ms. Victoria. You know, with the social media, everything, now every person is involved in social media. But other than that, you can even ask people around your neighborhood, you know, to get information about whatever it is that you need. Not only social media, but social media is a big thing now. So even for kids, a two-year-old child, they always get into the tablets and look at things and see things. So they might be the one saying, look, mommy, look, there's something here that you need to watch. You never know. But social media is one of the biggest things. And I also think that asking around, asking people in your community, your neighborhood, and they might even have the information that you need and you don't even know because you don't ask. Thank you. I'm gonna go super old school. It's uh, to me like getting resources about there is about developing that one on one relationship. Um, the the DOE um, has, uh, like I mentioned before, shelter based family assistance. Um, that role has largely been like, come to me if you have a question. But how do you know if you have a question if you don't know about the service to begin with? So how can you re-envision that role so it's somebody who's like out there saying, hey, I got this, this, and this, and this I can tell you about. And if you're not interested in it today, I'm here tomorrow. And again, that like going back to it over and over again, it's not like, well, I asked the parent, they weren't interested. I'm not saying like pressure them to say yes, but like create a culture where the resources are always available. The door is always open. Um, you can always come back and say yes, even if the first 10 times you said, no, I'm not interested. That idea of like, you might not be interested in it today, but I'm going to check back with you next week and see maybe if you've had any, if you, if you have any questions about it. And also like that proactive, like um, instead of like a parent saying, I have a question about enrollment, can you help me out with this? Saying, um, okay, Jennifer, um, here, here, here's like the menu of things I can help you out with. Um, and um, if you have any questions about it, we can just, I, I know this is probably overwhelming. We don't have to talk about it all, but please know you can always come back to me and like, we can we can talk about enrollment and transportation today, and maybe we talk about after school and childcare um, next week or even next month. But so much of that is about like developing that relationship, and 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 that be, means being available and being out there uh, with families, not just hidden away in your office with the door closed. <laughs> um, another thing too is. Um, Right now, the Department of Education Family Assistance only work 10 months out of the year. They don't work during the summers. And this is a huge issue because the largest number of families who enter shelter enter during the summer. That's when parents are making all the decisions about enrollment, about after school, about transportation, and there's no one from the DOE there. So it's really critical that they um, hire 
year-round staff at the at the shelters to support families around all of this. And we're happy to see that the Department of Ed is moving in that direction. And they're gonna they're they will be hiring some um, shelter-based community coordinators. Not nearly enough. Um, and so this is something that you know we're advocating for that they really build that out. So um, it there's uh, year-round staffing and staffing who are in a position to really offer that full menu of supports for families. Thank you. So I think we're at the end of the program. Um, Victoria had to drop off a little earlier, but we're so happy that she joined us today. And I just wanna thank Lourdes, Naomi and Jennifer for like your incredible work. Um, you're really all an inspiration uh, to me and everyone else in the Family Homelessness Coalition. Um, and I wanted to offer you an opportunity to say a few closing remarks, but before I turn it to you, I also want to thank Anna Kim for all the logistics and behind the scenes work she did with the fellows to um, pull this webinar together. So I'll open the floor to anyone that wants closing remarks and heartfelt appreciation for all of you for today. Um, firstly, I would like to thank Anna for bringing this opportunity to me, and I would like to thank you all for, you know, joining and being along. Um, my output for this whole thing is that as long as we have people who are still at the drawing board and who are still at the top of the pyramid trying to make everything trickle down, there can definitely be a change as long as meetings like this and, and there are people in the field who are still looking at every aspect and not just depending on one solution. I think there's a definite um, guarantee that there can be change, but it all has to start with compassion. I think as long as the higher ups have compassion for people who aren't um, fortunately blessed with homes or are suffering from low income or suffering from homelessness and anything of that nature, they have the ability to help people change. So it has to start with a good heart. And I think, um, as long as we keep coming back again to the drawing board and finding different solutions, because the things that may work for us today may not work in 2027. So there always has to be a regroup. There always has to be a sense of um, making things neutral and refreshing. You know, some of the laws that we followed in 1995 are not working today. So um, yeah, as long as there uh, is a sense of refreshment and compassion, there could always be a great change. And again, thank you all for having me. Thank you. Lourdes or Jen, did you want to add? I was going to add something um, before I do forget. I wanted to touch a little bit on the last question you had asked um, with the resources and how to get the information out. Um, we could, we, me and one of my other colleagues, we did a reach out, an outreach, I'm sorry. And we went out, we had pizza, we shared the pizza with the other people. And, you know, it's something just to see the faces itself and how they looked and like, they were very happy that we did something like that. You know, it puts a smile on my face and makes me think like, wow, there's really a lot of people in this world who really doesn't have what I have. Just to share a little bit about that with them, it's like, it's a good thing. And also to answer the other part of your question, um, just wanted to say that you guys are not alone. There's other people like me that was in the same situation as you. And just don't stay stuck in where you at. 
just do what you have to do and get out and seek for help if needed. And if anything, you could, you know, reach out to the um, to Anna or to whoever it is that you need to reach out to. And if you have to put your voice out there, just let it be heard. Don't hold back. You know, we are here to help. I'm here to help. And, you know, thank you, Anna, and you guys for being a part of this and making our voice be heard and yours. Thank you. I have nothing else to add. Naomi and Lourdes said it all. Um, such an honor to be included on a panel with you two. Um, thank you very much. Thanks, everybody. Have a good rest of your day. <laughs>